Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge. Daniel Figella, Emerge CEO and Head of Research, returns to the show to host today's conversation. On that note, today's guest is Nell Watson, Chair of the Endocrine Disrupting Chemical Hazard Working Group and the Human or AI Interaction Transparency Working Group at the IEEE Standards Association. Nell also leads a host of initiatives in teaching machines pro-social behavior and resolving cultural conflicts. She joins us on the program today to discuss the potential of AI to promote propaganda efforts through the lens of Zertzetung, a psychological espionage strategy developed during the Cold War where operatives wage warfare with a target's sanity. Without further ado, here's their conversation. So, Nell, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join. Yes. We've had enough conversations digitally that having one via audio is just absolutely warranted by this point. You're one of the few people that, in my opinion, are studying some of the important ethical considerations of sort of the metaverse and future of AI at a very, very high level. And some of this has to do with the manipulation of perception and how this is done sort of on an international stage, lots of new ways of doing this. And it has its origins from from your own research back to even the Cold War. I want to tee us up with the big German concept we're going to talk about today, and then we'll start to pry that apart in terms of AI. But can you set the stage with the term we're referring to? Right. So this term is Zersetzung. Zersetzung. It's a, obviously a very German word. Yes. And it broadly translates to kind of biodegradation or decomposition. And it's a term that was used by the East German, the DDR, the kind of Soviet Empire, communist East Germany, which of course fell around 1989 or so, 1990. But they had a very strong internal security system, and I guess external as well. Their ministry for security was very much targeted against dissidents, people who would want to resist against the rather authoritarian government. And they came up with a range of special tactics that they called Zersetzung. Now, most authoritarian governments would attack a dissident maybe by having some thugs beat them up in an alleyway or even you know, picking them up and taking them off to a gulag somewhere. But the East Germans were very clever. They decided to use tactics which were subtle, where people couldn't necessarily know that they were being targeted or undermined, but that would slowly drive them so crazy and so distracted that they would no longer have the resources or energy to devote to their dissident activities. So this would involve, for example, Romeo agents seducing someone or seducing somebody's spouse. It could even involve breaking into somebody's apartment to literally rearrange their sock drawer in order to make them think that they were going slightly crazy. Like if they've got like 10 purple socks and suddenly they're yellow, that's going to freak you out, but you're not going to be able to understand how that happened or the reason why. And so from very subtle tactics to, to more kind of daring or obvious ones, for example, offering somebody a dream job opportunity, and then they come to the interview and then you know suddenly the people there are very hostile. They, they, they flip on a dime and suddenly they're like, oh, no, no, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be suitable for this kind of position. You know, just to kind of demoralize people 
when they thought that they were on a home run. And these tactics were incredibly effective. They really undermined people's personal confidence, confidence in their loved ones, their associates in their different groups that they worked in. They found clever ways to turn people against each other and to suspect each other, even though there was no, no good reason to. And then kind of the Cold War ended and this stuff was largely forgotten about. Although some of the archives were opened and some people were able then to learn what activities had been done against them or by whom, because a lot of these things involved civilians who were recruited to kind of spy on people or carry out some of these activities. But largely it's been kind of forgotten about. But today we're living in a world where, of course, we're producing an enormous data exhaust, right? All of our activities, the things that we have an interest in, the things that we are engaged by is all being tracked by various large tech companies. And all of that information is being horse traded between them so that they can generate a very powerful signature of who we are as human beings and the kind of buttons that can be pushed on us. And so this makes the potential for these kinds of Zerzetsang style attacks on people deemed to be dissidents or deemed to be deplorables, all the more possible, all the more feasible. And indeed, it can be automated as well now that artificial intelligence is becoming so sophisticated and it's able to generate conversations, maybe even on a telephone, which sound incredibly lifelike and believable and sophisticated. And this means that this is now emerging as a potential new theater of war, whereby instead of trying to attack the enemy with tanks and bullets, instead the goal is to demoralize them so that they eventually collapse from within. Yeah. So much to, to, to unpack here, setting the stage very well, though, Nell. I appreciate it. We interviewed someone from the Geneva Center for Security Policy, wrote an entire book about plausible deniability as kind of the next wave of warfare, because as you and I talked about off microphone, overtly just going to war is not cool anymore, right? You can't really do it. It's not like, uh, you know, the days of Napoleon, where it was pretty normal. If you run a country, you just say, I'm I'm going to war. And everybody's right. like, well, th this is this is what people do, right? It's, it's not really like that anymore. You know, and thank goodness for that. But plausible deniability now becoming increasingly important. Obviously, we live more and more of our lives in the digital sphere. Much easier to know what somebody's spouse likes and maybe how to seduce them if you know everything they've ever watched on YouTube and you know, exactly. you know, what all the things that they like on Twitter, you know, what their addictions are, you know, what they're right. It's, it's much, much easier than having to watch them through binoculars for six months. So opens up a lot of doors. We can talk a little bit about this in two different contexts. The way I think about this, you know, in kind of the authoritarian government side of things, or you know, maybe even non-authoritarian governments, is there's the ability to influence the populations of other nations with these kinds of technologies, and there's the ability to influence one's own population. When you think about sort of how regimes might aim to manipulate people or, or entire populations outside of them in order to disturb them, make them ineffectual... What are some of the big picture ideas that kind of come to mind for you about how data and AI are, are fitting into the mix here? Well, obviously, these kinds of activities can be used internally to, for example, distract <laughs> dissidents in various ways and to demoralize 
undesirables within one's population, or of course they can be externally targeted in order to demoralize the citizens of other nations, not only through kind of propaganda, but on a deeply personalized level. And in fact, because of our individualized data exhaust, it's possible to infer our mood, right? Either from our activities, the things that we're looking at, or indeed simply from a short video feed, because it's possible to take, for example, heart rate and emotion, et cetera, just from video of a person, right? Could be video from CCTV, could be video from somebody's personal device if they're streaming or having a chat with someone. And that can be used to infer all kinds of psychological and physiological signatures of somebody's health or of somebody's mental state. And that means that if somebody is disaffected in some way, they can be influenced to become depressed. If they're depressed, they might be influenced to actually become despairing, right? So just the right nudge and just the right time can set people on a different trajectory. And that can be a very dangerous thing. We're going to talk in a moment about sort of the targeting of individuals. I think probably the way to easily imagine this, if I'm, you know, as an American citizen myself, there was a good deal of hoopla around some of our previous elections and some of the activity of foreign governments in those elections, and not in terms of picking a guy named Joe Stevens and making Joe Stevens become depressed, but by forging different kinds of groups around things like race or certain social issues or whatever the case may be, and aiming to foment as much sort of hatred of the other side as as humanly possible. And this, again, wasn't an individual targeting thing. It certainly wasn't a as far as I can tell, most of it was not hijacking Facebook's CPUs or, or GPUs. It was simply using the platform as it is to become a recommendation engine for all kinds of people with some interesting beliefs and getting them nice and riled up based on what works when it comes to getting people riled up. And social media is built for that, of course. So there's sort of this these high-level influences as well in terms of digital ecosystems. When you think about the things that concern you looking forward into the years ahead, about population level sort of impacts of these kind of technologies if an authoritarian government would want to influence someone. What are some of the things that for you jump on the radar as bigger concerns? Well, absolutely. The amount of polarization and partisanship, which has emerged in, say, the last eight or 10 years, has been phenomenal. And we know that different groups are pulling apart in terms of their values are are splitting. And of course, those values used to be informed by mass media. We all watched the same news. We all watched the same TV channels, pretty much the same movies. And now there's kind of a a forking in multiple different directions into clusters of people who are increasingly aligned in a certain way that is perhaps incompatible with others. And it makes it harder for people to have conversations when words don't even necessarily mean the same thing to people anymore, right? And this is incredibly dangerous because I grew up in Northern Ireland, which is a country which has had extreme polarization, not just along religious lines, but of course, ethnic and and cultural, even economic as well. And I've seen what it can be like in a society when that kind of polarization metastasizes into actual cold civil war. 
and it's it's awful and really the best thing that 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 happened was the kind of belfast agreement in 1998 where we laid some kind of ground rules a bit like geneva conventions of a sort to say that hey guys it's not cool to discriminate based on somebody's perceived affiliation in housing in jobs that kind of stuff simple things that we have today in most parts of the world for race or religion but don't for politics and increasingly i think that's going to become necessary these kinds of new recognition of a need for these kinds of civic protections interesting well, that's a conversation unto itself and the definition of words is a conversation unto itself either i won't bring sweat to appear on your brow by asking <laughs> you to, by asking you to define what a woman is for example we won't get into such prickly horrendous things on on such a podcast we'll talk about ai but yes as you're mentioning serious division all the way down to very baseline values people existing in their own little bubbles of influence and it would seem as though the general rule and we're going to talk about influencing one's own population if if you were you know a powerful government somewhere it would seem as though if you are running a government and have some influence there the general rule would be how could you create as as little internal dissent as possible as much as much harmony as possible as much alignment to the general goals of what would behoove the power of the nation as possible and then with other nations particularly overt enemies the goal would be as much infighting as possible as much energy being placed in places that will make them not powerful as as possible so align incentives and behaviors away from building power and then internally you'd want to do that i see it through that lens i think you know a facebook a tiktok what have you well actually i mean i'll make my own judgment call it tiktok as as kind of a, a wing of of a particular government but many social media i think in, in the states anyway probably making money is the name of the game i'm not sure if facebook I think that's probably the primary motive, but I think at a governmental level, most likely it's behooving the interests of the government as opposed to like an individual corporation. So there's affecting other folks, there's fomenting this kind of dissent, there's building these little resonance bubbles of of very extreme views potentially that become more and more hostile to other groups and being able to create those tensions. We've seen so much of that in the western world, obviously I, it feels like starting here in the states unfortunately where we're exporting our own sins and our own tendencies there is also the concern around how governments and up there authoritarian governments have a, a great and high ability to do this can wield these same technologies maybe to productively align their own citizenries beliefs behaviors etc to what will behoove the power of those ruling parties what are some of those considerations how might that be done how are you seeing that be done what are your thoughts around around that side of the coin well i think there are some examples of tech platforms that have one stance kind of externally focused and one stance internally focused and in fact we can even play digital tourist because if you change the country settings on your phone you might see certain things become accessible and certain things become inaccessible or for example if you use a, a VPN as well to virtually move location and so for example one jurisdiction internally might show relatively positive harmonious content of people working together to do a thing that's you know socially beneficial for society but that same platform could easily gear content aimed towards other nations to show things where people are acting in a selfish manner 
or they're acting in a way that is impulsive and is not necessarily acting in accordance with long-term value creation. And over time, those kinds of influences may change people's morals. They may change also people's behavior. Because as the old adage goes, we are the average of the five people closest to us. And if one of those virtual people is this device, which is constantly sending us content, you know, and we're watching it for an hour, maybe two hours a day, that can have a profound influence on a person and by extension, society at large. Yeah. And I'll put my finger on it with a a bit of perspective here and we'll keep kind of cracking this open. I mean, it, it has been stated that TikTok in China is a little bit of a different universe than what we have here in the States. Here in the States, we got a lot of good political stuff, a lot of good racial stuff, a lot of good gender stuff, a lot of that that real, you know, hot and bothered stuff. And, and also a lot of really silly dances to sort of encourage all the 11-year-olds to hope to be a TikTok influencer as a career. While in China, the bending of genders is actually kind of not the priority. In fact, they're, they're pretty adamant about masculinity remaining for, I imagine, military, reproduction, many other purposes why, why maybe you would, you would want a couple men around. And the kind of content promoted is, is sort of more educative in the fields and domains that they would want. I mean, I, I think back in history, you know, have a nation like Venice built on sea trade and, and sea power, they very rightly rewarded the people working in the arsenal, the, the, in the arsenals, the arsenales with, you know, with wine and with honors and with all kinds of things, because, hey, you're building a skill set that our entire society is constructed on. So we're, we're really encouraging that. Obviously, if, if you are a government and you control a social media platform, by golly, you would want to do precisely the same thing. Align the incentives of people to what would behoove your own power and, of course, do the exact opposite elsewhere. Part of this also has to do with maybe the information people can even get access to. I've been to certain geographies in the world where Google hasn't worked so well, we might say. And that's another sort of name of the game here. We have social media, but we also have what we can even get access to in the first place. Does that also fit into the mix or where does that fit into the mix for you in terms of more of the internal influence, more of the internal propaganda side of things? Yeah, I think that's that's a great observation. If If people cannot access alternative media, or if that alternative media is kind of throttled or downvoted or made less salient, less obvious to people, that will also tend to influence people towards a particular mainline narrative, all things being equal. Yeah. So again, another potentially another part of the mix here. So we're, we're talking about this high-level social influence. We're talking about something that really does fit the bill for plausible deniability. It's very, very different than landing on someone's shores is is slightly adjusting the social algorithm to encourage certain things with one population and and not with another. This may also drill its way down to more influencing individual people. I know you and I had kind of talked off microphone about this. Obviously, in the origins back in East Germany, I'm sure there was some societal influence, but there was, you know, everything from messing with the sock drawer to seducing someone's spouse, et cetera, ways to really target individual people. Where do you think that might potentially head? And is there anything you've seen even in the near term that leads you to believe that these things might be going on today when it comes to the virtual version of this? Yeah. I mean, we've seen, for example, Pegasus software scandal, whereby a company in Israel produced a method of hacking into iPhones, which I believe was then sold to other governments. And that government, that 
technology was used to harass dissidents and journalists who did not necessarily follow the government's narrative in various different places. And that compromised people's personal security, right? Their location, the things they worried about, the people they talked to, their loved ones, etc., all became highly accessible. And that went on for a long time before anybody triggered simply by accident. I believe the update bricked somebody's phone and they took it in for repair. And then the firmware was looked at and suddenly they realized that it had been flashed overnight, unbeknownst to the end user. And goodness knows what other things are going on that we have no idea about. And that wasn't necessarily from an intelligence organization. That was from a private company. But the thing is that often police forces will buy private data, which is held by data brokers on an individual, because it's cheaper and quicker than actually getting a subpoena or a warrant to obtain that information, right? For example, somebody's whereabouts on a certain date or a certain time. And so all of this not only compromises our personal security, but also due process at the same time. And we also see an increasing fusion between big tech and intelligence services as well. For example, deals struck between, for example, Microsoft or Amazon with various intelligence companies, a former director of the NSA joining the board of Amazon, etc., a company that has an Alexa in your bedroom and a Roomba in your lounge. A little bit frightening, right? We've seen other examples reported by media of Facebook having observed people chatting in private messages about their suspicion about something that the government had done that they believed had happened, and that being shared by Facebook with police services when they these people had not done anything actually against the law. They simply had a suspicion about what the government was doing. And so this also provides plausible deniability because the government can go to the big tech company and say, hey, like we want info on this and that. And then when, you know, some sort of Senate subcommittee says, hey, did you do these activities? They can hold their hands up and say, oh, no, it wasn't us. We didn't do anything. Right. They subordinate that naughty activity onto another kind of private entity that doesn't face the same scrutiny in general. Yeah, yeah, it's it's different than catching somebody outside with binoculars and getting a picture of them, right? To know what happens to your ephemeral data in what in what exact way and how somebody uses it vastly harder to track, right? And and you're mentioning this this instance with policing. I've got some other questions I'd love to pick apart here, but policing is is curious. I mean, we've long had some involvement with Interpol and having an understanding of where AI is starting to fit its way into the policing ecosystem, not just from facial recognition, but all kinds of predictive policing algorithms and drone technology and you name it. You're talking about police organizations purchasing data about a person, like you said, because it's easier than getting a subpoena. Are we talking about going to a Facebook, a LinkedIn, whatever, and saying, hey, what do I need to pay you to pull down? Because I I, I was wholly unaware that even such a thing was possible, but I'd love some instances of what you're talking about because this is new for me. Oh, absolutely. Because all these companies which are generating data on you, it's not just that data that they have access to. They sell that to middleware agents who then trade that amongst each other. And so basically the the ultimate picture that you can generate of a person is not just what they listen to on Spotify or what's in the content of their Telegram chats, maybe. It's aggregated all of that information 
all together, even public data from CCTV, etc., can be aggregated and what's called cross-correlated, right? So, for example, you might be able to infer something which has supposedly been anonymized just to like a, a zip code or a postcode. But then with some extra information, you can discern somebody's particular address because there's only a certain person of a certain age or a certain interest, special interest in a particular zip code. Well, then that's obviously that person, right? And so the more information you put together and aggregate, you can discern all kinds of patterns that the information alone could could not have told you. Yeah. And I guess I'm just wholly unaware that, you know, the NYPD could go to these middleware people of whom, to be frank, right now, I have no companies coming to mind. I'm, I'm not as active in, in researching that space and say, hey, Jeb Smith at, at this address, I, I just want to see what you guys have on it. What do I need to pay? Like, I was unaware that any such a thing was viable or certainly not in such a direct transactive sort of way. But, but you're saying that, you know, even in Western nations, like this is a relatively common thing. It is, it is. And, you know, the data is the data is cheap. If you want to know where this person was, you know, to get kind of a digital alibi, basically, you can pay fifty bucks and that, that might that might be enough to, to give you the information. So that's way what cheaper you- and simpler than getting a warrant. Oh, way cheaper. I mean, where do I pay the 50 bucks? I mean, just out of curiosity, like, like, are these middleware people completely ephemeral and only the police know where to find them? Like, it seems like if you're operating that illegally, interacting with the police would be tough. You'd have to have a, a, a legit front here for people to be able to pay these $50. Who are these people? <laughs> there, are, there are a great many of these kinds of data aggregation companies. Typically, they'd be looking to deal on a on a bulk basis or with a. I can imagine, know, yeah, with with a sizable organization. But there's there's a lot of these orgs, and they have very very granular data on all of our activities. Got it. All right. I, and again, not having researched the space, I'm just taking your word there. Folks who are tuned in can you know Google away in, in terms of what they'd like to find. When I think about this individual influence thing, I think about well, if you're an authoritarian nation. And you wanted to, and there were, let's say, 1,000 or 400 scientists in certain very important fields in your country that you really, really, really like wanted to see them succeed and proliferate their research and whatever. You know, you could fund them, but you could also, you could do all sorts of things to kind of make their lives better. Maybe even you could, you know, if one of them has some kind of like a video watching addiction, you could find some way to kind of individually tweak the user settings for that person to make it less addictive, less interesting for them to get the hell back to work or, you know, don't stop doing all this online gambling. Like we kind of know you're doing it. I know you you think you've got this separate username, but we know you are. We really hope you're going to keep building military robots, to be honest. We don't want you to lose all your money. So we're going to like make that app not work or whatever. So in, under an authoritarian regime, we might be able to help to not only micro target dissidents, but potentially help out folks who we want to help out because we would have our our fingers in literally every social platform you would touch. Obviously, in China, that that is the name of the game. It would seem harder to do that overseas with somebody else's folks. You know, I'm imagining I'm an authoritarian government and there are some really quite important, maybe military drone researchers or people focusing on other kinds of emerging technology, biowarfare, whatever, that I happen to think is incredibly important in that it could be threatening to my country. I don't want to see you become technologically predominant. 
I would like to be technologically predominant. It would seem challenging to break into, unless it's a social platform that I as an authoritarian regime control and such things exist, but there's many more, right? There's, you know, Gmail, Facebook, YouTube, Duolingo, you know, whatever the case may be, where I don't know if I could really bend your digital experience in this Zuzutsung sort of fashion because I don't have my tendrils in there. How would I go about sniper influence when I don't own the platforms? Well, you don't need to own them if you have the data and you can easily get the data from data brokers and that data can be very up to date, up to the, the milliseconds potentially. And so if you have access to that, and basically everybody does for quite a small fee, then you can exert a very powerful influence on others. As you say, it potentially could be used to kind of help people stay on the straight and narrow, but generally it's much easier to disrupt something than to to harmonize or protect it. Yeah, and so it would yeah. be much, much easier to leverage this as a as a way to target particular highly effective people or highly potentially disruptive people to to this this foreign power in order to make them far less effective. Less effective, yes, yes. So let me see if I'm following you conceptually, and then we'll get into our last question of the day. What you're getting at is, okay, maybe I, as an authoritarian government leader somewhere, don't own Facebook, I don't own Google, I don't own Duolingo, I don't own whatever other apps people spend most of their time on. And you know, I, I don't own these things, but I can go in, I can purchase information about where you've been, what you watch, what you like, what you don't like, what you spend your time on, how often you spend your time there, et cetera. And now I can build this picture of you. You know, you you really have a soft spot for anything that has to do with Elizabethan England. You really, you know, I can I can find all these things that like naturally you have this lovely affinity for, and maybe the, the things that you fear a lot, the things that make you angry, and maybe figure out all the things that distract the hell out of you and make you less effective. And then maybe whether it be through, I'm imagining as, as said authoritarian government, I may not be able to affect what's in your Facebook feed. I, I just don't know if I could do that, to be honest. I'm not aware of what, you know, Russia or China or whatever can do. But if I know that information that I've been able to purchase, maybe when you're on my platform, I can influence you in a specific way or via email or via meeting you at a conference. I can now do different sorts of things, knowing that you have this gambling addiction that you don't talk about, knowing that you, you know, watch porn at work or something, knowing that you, you know, different things that might be able to let me influence you on or offline. Am I, am I on the right track here? Yes. Yes. I mean, as well as influencing people through those, those platforms that one doesn't have direct control over through, for example, adverts, right? Advertisements or indeed potentially getting access to somebody's actual computer, basically getting getting root on that computer so that you can then maybe even inject content into a web page or into an application yeah, directly yeah. at that low le at that very low level as well. Yeah. Okay, got it. So this is kind of painting a bigger picture of where things are headed. I, I do think that the idea of plausible deniability is extremely powerful. The fact that we are spending so much of our time in front of screens, including you and I right now, which mm -hmm. is completely normal, right, for us to spend 16 hours like this every day, <laughs> it makes for a very trackable, very data-rich ecosystem to do this kind of plausibly deniable influence. And this poses, as you had mentioned, you know, an, an entirely new sort of 
dimension of potentially warfare. If we're talking about nations competing with each other and trying to behoove their own interests, I would 1000% agree with that statement of yours. I think that many people are not quite seeing that as the current state of affairs. I think it's going to be very hard to deny that that is the state of affairs, even five years from now, never mind 10. In 10 years, it may be the primary sort of domain of war. We could argue it even is today. When you think about what policy leaders should be considering as we move forward into this data-rich ecosystem with so many different tendrilled ways of individual and societal level influence and a dynamic of international competition here, which again, I think the U.S. has completely lost track. Like We have no idea that this is even a thing, but the idea of nations having significant influence over the content feeds and the realities of, of their their rivals' populations. What do policy leaders need to put on the table? What do you wish that they understood? What for you are the most important issues to, to make known for people thinking about policy in this domain? I think it's very, very important that people become aware that this is emerging, if it has not already, as a new, new dimension of war. And I don't just mean um, these kinds of zerzetzung attacks or or cultural attacks on people, but potentially also things like sabotaging of food plants or sabotaging of energy plants or even the introduction of pests into an agricultural ecosystem, possibly even geoengineering of weather so that it causes droughts or devastating floods, etc. All of these activities are kind of plausibly deniable. Oops, something happened. Oops, what a shame. Oops, you know, now your economy is kind of in a mess and, you know, people are, are angry because there's not necessarily enough food or enough energy, etc. Oops, right? This kind of new dimension of invisible war is something that we need to be aware of and we need to have a sort of proactive paranoia about so that that which which appears to be an accident but is not can be rooted out and so that we can understand and verify that something genuinely was an accident and was not stealthy kind of sabotage going on and we don't really have have operations aimed at that we have operations aimed at cybersecurity so pre preventing hackers we've operations of course relating to intelligence gathering relating to traditional kinds of warfare, but not about this kind of hybrid warfare. And I think it's very important that we devote some resources to investigating these kinds of plausible incidents to see if there was any intentionality behind it, and indeed, where that responsibility might ultimately lie. Yeah, I, I guess it seems as though there is a, what do we want to call this, investigative investment in assessing how social algorithms or, or other kinds of digital experiences might have been manipulated, might be manipulated and be able to diagnose, was this some kind of direct manipulation in some way or not? Yeah. That, that seems important. Would love your take on this, but it also seems quite important on my side that you know Western nations would consider what sort of data and sharing and communications is, are even accessible, right? Because right now, if I'm an authoritarian regime, I could deny a genocide, I could foment political dissent, whatever, by simply creating a YouTube channel blatantly under my government's name, 
or, mm. or, or a media entity owned by my government and just pump in whatever info I want. I could make it viral. I could even make it funny and I could just get a lot of shares. And that would, that would go easily on Facebook. That would bounce all around. It seems as though there is a question of, sure, oh, let's investigate. But also, how many tendrils do we allow to sort of puncture into our environment in the first place? It, it does feel like drawing maybe boundaries around access and inputs is also part of the mix. I'd love your take on that as well. Yeah, I think creating honeypots to observe for these kinds of potential direct attacks, for example, the potential routing of a system to gain access to it, honeypots could potentially detect if that has potentially happened. And as for those streams of content, I think we're now entering an era where it's it's clear that a great deal of content is going to be not only generated by machines, but also enhanced in various ways by machines, remixed and sexed up by machines. Yeah. And that potentially can create what's called a supernormal stimulus, right? Something which is unnatural but irresistible, kind of like a like a cheeseburger, which has, you know, all of these different delicious carby, fatty, meaty goodness in it. But it's it's wholly unlike anything that would ever exist in nature, right? Yeah. And we're, our lives are full of digital cheeseburgers, about gossip about people we've never met, we have some strange parasocial relationship with, right? Impossibly sexy people in, in abundance of tens of, of thousands of them on porn sites, etc., that we would never have natural access to, yeah, right? Yeah. And all of them airbrushed and photoshopped and filtered, etc., as well. And these kinds of supernormal stimuli are, again, irresistible right? Because they, they reach us on a, on a primal level and can again leave us dissatisfied with actual reality once we're, we're kind of forced to, to acknowledge the mundane simplicity and ugliness of, of natural living. And all of this stuff can again lead people to act in ways which are unhealthy or w- which are obsessive or indeed do not lead to the long-term value of human beings and the society in which they're based. The emerging great escape into virtual, hyper-customized, immersive worlds, I think, is a podcast and, frankly, a book or you know, an era of humanity unto itself in terms of a, a topic to discover. But as you're rightly bringing up, the proliferation of those technologies will be one of many ways that this future field of war plays out in terms of influence, in terms of distraction, in terms of the effectiveness of populations, and it's something that needs to be considered as well. If if one society is swimming in in distractive pleasure half the time, even in the upper classes, it doesn't quite bode well for their technological predominance, you know, two, three, five years later. So many, many things to consider. And I know that that's all we had for time, but now I sincerely appreciate you being able to share your perspectives here on kind of the bigger picture of AI and how it's affecting society here. Thank you so much for being able to join us. My great pleasure, Dan. Thank you so much. Wrapping up today's episode, I think it's worth commenting on Northern Ireland, especially since I have a world policy background. Northern Ireland in the early 1990s is an especially compelling use case, if you will, 
for modern de-radicalization or de-escalation of a modern day insurgency. For those familiar with the BBC show Dairy Girls, it's a warm depiction of these times, but where they stand out in global policy is it's one of the few examples of trying to de-escalate the tensions within a population and it actually politically and socially all ending up for the better. Though this took place just before the advent of the internet, it's interesting that the media landscape was just modernized enough by that point to use as a frame of reference for the current polarization that we're seeing throughout the West, as Nell describes throughout today's episode. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.